Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And I stopped to check the river and I wasn't sure whether to do it. And I thought, ah, this looks a bit too much. And then I thought, this will look awesome on film. And so I thought, <laughs> go on then, <laughs> go on then, I'll, get, I'll do it. And I set off down this river and yeah. instantly regretted it. It was terrifying. It's the closest I've ever come to dying. I dragged myself out of the river, very humbled. Uh, and I learned two important lessons. The first was I'd forgotten to press record on the video camera. So I didn't even get that. Uh, <laughs> oh God, after all that. Of it. And the second thing uh-huh. is something that I've now carried on into everything I do, whether expeditions or writing books or anything is would I do this thing if nobody ever found out or am I doing it to impress strangers on the internet? I'm Srini Rao and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alistair, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So as you and I were joking here, given the adventurous nature of both of our lives, yours probably more than mine, um, it has taken six months for us to actually make this happen. But I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. Uh, I've known about your work for a long time, long before you actually reached out and um, really just have a a profound respect and admiration for what you do and, and kind of how you show up in the world. Uh, and with that in mind, I want to start by asking what I think is a fitting question, given the nature of how you've ended up. And that is, what social group were you a part of when you were in high school? And what has been the impact of that on who you've become and what you've done with your life? That is a great question, which no one has ever asked me before. So this bodes well <laughs> for our interview. The social I've known to group do that are, to people. <laughs> oh, it's good. Well, I like being made to think. Um I think the social group I was part of was the kind of middle of the road, non-event kind of kids. We weren't the, the superheroes or the superstars, and nor thankfully we were we quite the kids getting pummeled and having our heads flushed down the toilets. Although I was definitely, I was definitely closer to the getting my heads flushed down the toilet than being part of the gang flushing heads down the toilet. <laughs> um, I think one thing that really has driven me to start, that, that originally drove me to start doing big adventures was just wanting to prove a point, prove a point to the world and prove a point to myself. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is growing up, say at high school, I felt very anonymous. I wasn't the cleverest or the funniest or the fastest or the toughest. I was just average. And that kind of bugged me that I wasn't really very good at anything. <laughs> so yeah. That, that was very much a factor behind me deciding after I graduated from university that I wanted to go make a mark on the mm-hmm. world as yeah. much just for my own self-confidence as anything else. And so I decided to try and do something really big and really hard for the first time in my life. And I for that, I decided to try and cycle around the world. Um, wow. And it was an interesting experience because... I set off on my bike and the you know, cycling around the world is quite a hard thing to do. And I, I very much underestimated it. So the first year I was out of my depth. I was homesick. I was scared. I was lonely. I was sure I was going to quit at some point. 
But one of the main things that kept me going was this desire to prove myself, to to be able to say, I told you so to the world. So it's, which is quite a negative, but powerful driving factor. So what I noticed as the trip evolved was after about a year or so, I'd kind of, I figured that by the time I'd cycled from England to South Africa, I'd sort of (laughs) proved my point to these notional people from back in the locker room at high school. And the second year of the ride, so cycling up from Patagonia up towards Alaska, that was very much driven by me now, for the first time being curious about what I might be able to do. So trying to prove myself to myself. So it it was much more internally driven than externally driven. And then by about year three and year four of the bicycle journey, I sort of felt that I'd proved what I needed to prove to the world. I'd proved what I needed to prove to myself. And now I could just sit back and actually enjoy being on my bicycle, cycling (laughs) cycling through (laughs) Kazakhstan and stuff and actually uh, enjoy the experience. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I wanted to go back to this piece uh, about this need to prove something to the world, because I I, I was wondering if you would acknowledge the, the sort of unhealthy aspects of that. Uh, because I think like deep down, every one of us has that to some, you know, component. You know, we, we basically look at our lives and maybe it's proving to our parents, maybe it's proving to our peers. I, I, you know, I distinctly remember one thing that happened when I got my first book deal was I asked my editor at Penguin, how many people get into your office? What are the odds of this happening? She said one in 5,000. And I came back and I told my dad, hey, you know that that's harder than it is to get into medical school, right? And, you know, because my sister is a doctor and I realized I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, here I am 40 something years old or, le- you know, 30 in my late 30s. And I'm talking about this, you know, need to prove, even though I'm writing literally the polar opposite in the damn book. <laughs> and so that makes me wonder, you know, what is that? Like, why do we feel this need? How do you let it go? Um, and how do you let it go? If, for, for example, you know, without having to bike around the world? <laughs> well, if I knew that answer, I'd have saved myself four years of sweat and uh, and butt rash. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, I'm. it took me until I was in my late 30s to finally feel comfortable with myself. You know, by, by which point I'd cycled around the world, I'd rode across the Atlantic Ocean, I'd walked across southern India, and I'd published maybe eight, nine, ten books. And only around then did I finally start to think, I'm doing all right. I'm actually doing all right. And to stop constantly thinking that I need to chase and I need to chase. And, I, and once I catch up that guy who's written three, three more books than me, then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll have made something in my life. And I think it took me a long time to realize just how ridiculously deep the, uh, the memories of being a kid are. And the strata that you put yourself in from when you're 12 or 13, you kind of stay in for life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've run, I've run marathons, I've run ultra marathons, I've done big expeditions. And yet I never, I always think of myself as the non-athletic wimpy kid, just because that's what the, uh, the football coach said <laughs> that I was when I was 12. And therefore I've thought that for the next 30 years. Yeah. Um, it's astonishing. Um, yeah. I, I mean, none of this is new to new knowledge yeah. to the world, but it's certainly, I find it interesting when it impacts people who mm. are sort of living a life that on one hand seems like, hey, that guy's going great. He's been on big adventures. He's written bike books, but actually yeah. he's still just trying to prove yourself to the old uh, school coach or something. Well, it's funny that we're talking about sports in particular, because I I relate to the 12 year old wimpy kid. I mean, I played high school football in Texas, which is, you know, as a seventh grader who's Indian not genetically predisposed for football. That's just a recipe for getting the shit beat out of you. Uh, and so I, I literally was like, oh, I don't have any athletic ability whatsoever. And of course, now I'm an avid surfer and snowboarder. But I, I think there's something really interesting that you observed was that it stopped being about trying to prove. And I, it's so relevant that we're having this conversation because when I was you know, snowboarding yesterday, I was, you know, I was having such a great time and I realized it's like, wow, my skill level has really leveled up. Like I'm hitting black diamonds and licking up turns at like, you know, faster rates than I ever have. My you know memory muscle is super sharp. But I was doing one thing and that was tracking my speed using an app. And, you know, I, th- I got to the end of the day and I thought to myself, I'm not a professional snowboarder. Uh, there's really no reason for me to be using this app. And every time I go back up the lift, rather than 
enjoy the bliss of what I've just done. I'm looking at my speed wondering why it wasn't faster because it feels so much faster. And I, I was like, wow, quantifying this thing that I do for pure joy is robbing the joy out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, geez, welcome to my life. My life, I have the, the, my job is adventure and freedom and wilderness. And then I somehow yeah. turn that all into my job by trying to get as many likes as I can on Instagram and therefore wanting to punch myself in the face <laughs> for the ridiculousness of it. I had a yeah. similar incident of, um, measuring my speed. I went to this, um, mountain bike trail center. Um, and I love mountain biking. It's one of my very favorite things. I was riding down the same trails for the whole day. And what I noticed, of course, is by the end of the day, you know the turns, you really get into it, you get that sense of flow. By the end, I was going so fast, and I really was quite impressed with myself. I started to think, I might have a professional career ahead of myself here. I reckon, <laughs> I, reckon I might be a, I'm, I really am quite impressed. So when I got home, I checked on Strava, my scores, yeah. and wow, I was so down near the bottom. So talk about totally <laughs> cr- crushing <laughs> crushing your joy. I thought I was a wonderful uh, mountain biker. Actually, I realized I was just quite a timid, middle-aged bloke. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad you brought up, you know, sort of social media and comparison because we live in a world that quantifies everything we do and measures us with endless amounts of metrics. Uh, How do you, as somebody who has turned this into your job, navigate that dynamic while still enjoying what you do? Because if your, you know, ability to survive and your ability to feed yourself is based on, hey, let me do the craziest thing I can do to get more likes on Instagram. How long is it before you pull a Shane McConkie on us and die? Well, I've, yeah, that's definitely a one route you can go down. And the other, before you even get to the Instagram level of this, is just the adrenaline and the excitement of adventures. You go off on an adventure, you get great excitement. And therefore, to get that thrill again, you need to do something bigger or harder or scarier or more dangerous. Uh And that generally only ends badly in the long run, that progression. So yeah. I've had to do quite a few things in in what I do, one of which is to not believe the uh, Instagram version of my life and to remember <laughs> that I'm actually a mere mortal. Um, the other thing is, in terms of the risks and things, is um, yeah, about 10 years ago, actually, I did an expedition in Iceland. I paddled down this river in whitewater rafting, and it was terrifying. And I stopped to check the river and I wasn't sure whether to do it. And I thought, ah, this looks a bit too much. And then I thought, this will look awesome on film. And so I thought, <laughs> go on then, <laughs> go on then, I'll, get, I'll do it. And I set off down this river and yeah. instantly regretted it. It was terrifying. It's the closest I've ever come to dying. I dragged myself out of the river, <laughs> very humbled. Uh, and I learned two important lessons. The first was, I'd forgotten to press record on the video camera, so I didn't even get that. Uh, <laughs> oh God, after all that. Of it. And the second thing uh-huh. is something that I've now carried on into everything I do, whether expeditions or writing books or anything, is would I do this thing if nobody ever found out? And I ask myself that before mm-hmm. every journey, before every book I write, am I doing this for the right reasons or am I doing it to impress strangers on the internet? And that has been such mm-hmm. a good question in my life. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, that's been, that literally is the message of my, my most recent book and audience of one, uh, which is all about creativity for its own sake. And it's funny you say that because I, you know, I got the new iPhone 11 and I, I saw the video capabilities and I thought to myself, wow, like, you know, what I've always wanted to do is make a film. And I realized I was like, wow, this is the first time in, in ages I am doing something creative that is not in an attempt to monetize it. Like it's literally, I'm making a documentary about the women in my family and what amazing cooks they are. And I was like, I'm not doing this for any reason other than that I want to learn this skill um, and something that it just seems like a lot of fun. Like I took Ken Burns Masterclass and yeah, I'll upload it somewhere, mainly to share with my family. Uh, but it's it's such an interesting thing because, you know, one of the things I said was that the paradox of having all these tools is they facilitate so much creativity, yet they inhibit it at the same time for the very reasons you're talking about. Mm. I think, and gosh, there's such a lightness and joy of doing something just because you want to do it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what I've noticed in my own experience is that that when I do, when I come up with an idea and I just think, I'm going to do this idea because it really excites me. And then I think, well, it's a stupid idea. No one else will be interested. It'll make no money. But I still think, but I really want to do it. I go yeah. and do it anyway. And I can think of three examples in my life. So. Uh, one would be cycling around the world rather than going to get a proper grown-up graduate money-earning job. The second was when I decided to switch from big adventures to what I called micro-adventures, essentially trying to get short, local, weekend, trying to get an adventure fix within the constraints of real life. That, did, that mm. didn't seem very sensible in terms of an expedition career. Yeah. And then the third thing was when I decided to uh, spend a month walking through Spain playing the violin despite being able to play uh, play the violin. Yeah. The thing that links each of these three things is they sounded a bit stupid. I did them purely for joy. And yet the output of those, probably because it was filled with joy, those three things have earned me more money than anything I've ever done when I've been chasing money. That's such an interesting paradox. And, you know, it's like I said, the ultimate paradox of creative work is that what you create for an audience of one is much more likely to reach an yeah. audience of millions. Yes, so, exactly. I, I want to come back to, to... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just, yeah, so just rather than sitting down, strategizing, thinking, ah, the uh, the key trends of this year are that this social media platform wants this and then trying to write a book for that sort of structured, strategized thing is going to be a terrible, terrible product, even if it's got all the cleverness behind it rather than the, doing a thing of joy, isn't it? Yeah, so... Uh, I want to go into both the, all, all three of the things you mentioned, the bike ride, um, the micro adventures, because I think the micro adventures, like anybody listening to this will feel, oh, 
but before we do that, I, I think let's start with the bike ride in particular, because I think the question that came to mind when you said was, oh, I decided to go and do this was you know, rather than go and get a proper job. What in the world did your parents and your family members say when you told them that? Because if you told Indian parents, hey, you know, I think I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to ride my bike around the planet. My parents would be like, like <laughs> hell you are. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what my parents uh, thought was, but I think a more interesting answer is uh, this, a, a friend of mine um, in England, he's called Imran Mughal, and he is the first British Pakistani guy to cycle around the world. And I really love talking to him about the differences in our experiences. Now, I'm a middle-class white guy. Uh, he's a, a, a more sort of working-class British Pakistani guy. And he, the amount of barriers and obstacles and social tradition and stuff that he had to overcome, he didn't even actually tell his mum he was going to cycle around the world. He told his mum he's going to go for quite a long bike ride and then just kept going. And what... <laughs> <laughs> what was fascinating, of course, is that when he made it right the way around the world and he comes back to his street and the entire Pakistani community are out on the street cheering and joyful and thrilled at this guy. But yeah, geez, he had to overcome some obstacles before he even got to the start line. So whereas my story is much less interesting, my parents, so I was training, I was at university, I was going to become a high school science teacher, Mr. Humphreys, the biology teacher. And my parents would have been quite glad for that you know it's a perfectly sensible job to get and they'd have probably for sure preferred me to do that um they didn't they weren't wildly keen about the bike ride but looking back i didn't appreciate it at the time but looking back i'm very grateful that they didn't object they didn't really support but nor did they object they let me make yeah. my own choices and retrospectively i'm very grateful for that yeah Sorry, one other thing on that is that I did assume that what I was going to do was go for a bike ride. Uh, I thought it would take a couple of years and then I would come back and be a teacher. And, you know, if, you have, if you're a kid and your teacher has cycled around the world, he's going to be a much better teacher. So I actually thought it was quite a sensible life thing to do to get this adventurous itch out of my system and then settle down to normal real life that was my plan i wasn't planning to be a full-time bum for life at the time hmm. so on the ride itself um you mentioned at one point you thought about quitting what were the moments that really really tested you and what did you learn from them and what would you say is one of the craziest parts of the whole bike riding experience <laughs> um, I found day one incredibly testing to get out of my warm, comfortable bed in my family home in a very, very beautiful part of England, the Yorkshire Dales National Park. It's incredibly beautiful. And to get on my bike and suddenly just think, why am I leaving this behind? This is wonderful. I'm the luckiest guy around and I'd not noticed that until that moment. So beginning I found brutally difficult. And then off I went and I rode across Europe and I made it to uh, Damascus in Syria. And I remember in Syria looking at a world map. It would taken me about two and a half months, I think, to get from England to Syria. And it was winter by then and it was cold at night in my tent. And I looked at this world map and the distance from England to Syria on a world map was tiny. But <laughs> I'd been busting my guts out for two and a half months. And then I, everything came crashing down. Then I just thought, wow, the world is really, really big. I am way out of my depth. I cannot do this. So that was a huge low point. I just spent, I checked into some disgusting, dirty hovel of a hotel near the bus station, one of those sort of $2 a night flea pits. And I barricaded the door and just cried my eyes out for days, just thinking I can't do this. Um, that was the one of the real, real low points of the trip. Um, and they kind of repeated themselves probably every six months for the first, <laughs> let's say, two and a half years. Um, and then eventually I got used to it. In terms of craziness, oh gosh, I got uh, held up at gunpoint in Siberia. And then uh, once the guy had stolen my wallet, uh, I was lost. So I then asked him for directions and we got the map out, <laughs> spread it out, spread it out in the front of his car and he helped give me directions. So there's a, there's a hint of goodness in everybody. 
Um, I decided to do a bit of naked cycling through a town in Japan, and I uh, quickly discovered that the Japanese police don't find that nearly amusing as British people do. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it's four, year, four years of your life in your mid-twenties uh, being a permanent stranger every place you go. There's a weird shroud of anonymity, which is the, the glorious upside of the eternal loneliness of it. So yeah, um, yeah it's a strange way to spend four very formative years of my life. So there are numerous questions just come from that alone. Well, one, you know, you end up in Syria of all places. Was Syria in the situation that it's in now at the time or is it just, uh, you know? No, it was not. It was before the war. Which, okay. you know, uh, one, of the, um, one of the brilliant things about traveling a lot is d- developing empathy for other parts of the world. So places which uh, generally are just sort of disaster zones on the TV news are often now places that I've, bicycle through and have very fond memories of and so yeah the the thoughts now of what was a beautiful charming gracious country just ripping itself to pieces for many many years is very sad indeed yeah so you know you mentioned that this is a really bizarre way and there's a sort of anonymity and glory to loneliness what i wonder is when you come back from something like this how does it affect your relationships and your ability to interact with other people who actually know you as opposed to people who only meet you briefly? And then this is a stupid logistical question, but how did you deal with oceans? Did you just get on boats to cross them and basically ride around continents? Yeah, I, so I'd cycle. My plan was to cycle the length of the land masses, of which there are three main ones. So I cycled from uh, England to South Africa. I jumped on a sailing boat across the Atlantic and I cycled from. Patagonia to Alaska, and I took a boat from Alaska across the Pacific, and then I cycled from northeastern Siberia back to England. Um, that's that's the logistical question. The the relationships thing, uh, you know, people. I really think that you know, having huge adventures is a fascinating thing to do in your life, but I caution people who are doing it as a attempt to find eternal happiness in life. Um, my experience and the experience of many of my friends who've done other big uh, life-affecting expeditions is that often it's a case of flinging open Pandora's box um, because from, from then on, when you are at home, you find it so incredibly boring compared to the thrills of the open road. And yet when you're out on the open road, you miss the sense of community and stability and routine and familiarity of home. So I think in many ways I found that I've cursed myself much more than if I'd stayed to be Mr. Humphreys, the biology teacher. I think that would have been a simpler choice of life, but Mm. I guess I'm not really in the business of looking for a simple life. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I think that when we travel and when we do these things, like you said, we we think they're going to lead to all of these things. I mean, I'm an avid surfer and I remember living in Costa Rica for six months thinking, hey, you know, what better place to be for six months than a place where the waves are perfect and you don't wear wetsuits. By the end of the six months, I hated it. I was so ready to come home. Um, and I realized I was like, this is not for me. I don't want to live this way. I want to be there for. And I remember I went back for vacation in 2013 for three weeks. And I said, wow, I had a much better time on this trip than I did while I was living here. Uh, yeah it's fascinating isn't it part of the problem of course is that whenever you whenever you go somewhere to take to try and get away from your problems uh unfortunately you always have to take yourself with you <laughs> uh and that that generally you can't really get away from that can you but also that there's the notion of um i guess for you it was the the routine of every day being a surf day you realize that oh actually there is more to life than just beaches and surfboards mm-hmm. and trying to get a balance of how many surfboards you want, and then how many days of manic deadlines and podcasts and stuff, which is busy but also fun in different ways, and trying to get that balance. Um, I, for example, like when I when I was cycling around the world, I never ever thought that I would settle living in England. I always thought there's so many amazing countries out here. I'm going to live in one different country every year for the next eighty years. And then I got home back to England, and I realised that wow, well. Argentina's great and California's great and Azerbaijan's great and pretty much everywhere's great. So what does England have that these places don't have? And that was my friends and my history and my roots and my connection. And that was, uh, I realized, was the deciding factor in choosing where I was going to stop. But having said that, I still do want to bust out and go to different places 
often as well. The wanderlust never leaves you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So you one thing I wonder, uh, well, two things. One is is one, the sense of adventure, which I think will make a perfect transition into talking about these micro adventures. It seems to be something that many of us uh, tend to lose with age. So I wonder why that is, because I, I think in, I'm kind of like you in that I'm the, you know, nerdy athletic, you know, lack of athletic skill band geek who became a surfer and snowboarder. Um, and usually I think it's the opposite uh, of that. Uh, not that people become band geeks as adults, because that would be weird. But um, <laughs> the the other thing I wonder uh, is not just, you know, why do people lose that sense? But one thing you had mentioned was that you wanted to prove to yourself so that it would increase your confidence. And I had Jamal Yogis, who's uh, you know another author, big wave surfer. He wrote a book called The Fear Project. And as a part of The Fear Project, one of the things he taught himself how to do was to surf mavericks. Now, if you know anything about surfing, which I'm guessing you do, Surfing Mavericks is, for most normal people, a suicide mission. <laughs> most of us wouldn't last a minute out there. We would die. And one of the things I asked him, which is why, you know, the question that I want to post to you is, okay, when you conquer something that crazy and that ambitious and, you know, that death-defying that most of us would never even fathom doing, does it translate to confidence in other parts of your life? And if so, how in both unhealthy and healthy ways? Yeah, I certainly think that's... Um 
expeditions has helped with my self-confidence. Um, one of the main ways for that is by doing a journey on your own, you have to sort stuff out yourself. You can't go hiding any longer. You can't go blaming people. You can't hide behind excuses or get other people to do stuff for you. You have to stand up and deal with what's in front of you. And if you don't deal with it, you have to accept the consequences of that. And through doing that repeatedly, I've learned two things. One is that I'm far more competent than I used to label myself as. I can, if I have to, stand up and get stuff done. And the second thing I learn, which is very good for countering that, is you also learn that you are often weak, out of your depth, make stupid mistakes, and are not nearly as tough and heroic as you like to daydream you are. So I think it brings me some level of confidence with some a happy medium of uh, awareness of your mortality and your fallibility. So I found that adventures have been great for that sense of just where I fit into the world. Yeah. That's been really useful. Um, and then I think another aspect of that you asked about a little bit about old, basically when people get old, we get so boring. And this is one of my pet hates is why people become boring when they reach <laughs> uh, 30 or 40 or whatever. Jeez, people get so boring. Yeah. Um, and I think what adventure has done for me is, is it's helped me build my life around three things, which are um, a degree of scaring yourself, you know, like, like um, taking on mavericks or you know, challenging yourself to do something that scares you and is difficult. And then when you overcome it, you get that thrill, but you also get the self-confidence and the momentum to try the next thing. And then the other two aspects are curiosity and enthusiasm. And I think if you can get a, a circle going of uh, enthusiasm leads to curiosity, leads to scaring yourself, leads to more enthusiasm, leads to more curiosity. I think that little, those three things looping around help fight off the temptation to just settle down into a rut. Yeah. And what curiosity has really shown me is that the word adventure can apply differently to different people. And it's very much evolved in my life from being trying to be big, tough, macho testosterone to just trying to do things that are scaring myself, maybe cerebrally rather than just, ah, if I don't do this thing now, I'm going to die. So curiosity, enthusiasm, and scaring yourself a bit on, on repeat. Mm, I love that. Um, so let's get into uh, this whole idea of micro adventures, uh, because I think that to me was something that really stood out. And it kind of, you know, I was thinking about that when you said that. And it made me think about even, you know, as I mentioned, the conversation I had with Dave Cornwaith, uh, who, who was here about riding a skateboard around his own town and not using motorized transport and how he started to see his own town differently. Because I think that people hear you say some of what you said, like, okay, well, you know, I'm 80. Like, I don't want my dad doing half of what you do. I would, you know, because I, you know, I want him to be around for a long time. Like I, you know, and, but, but I like the idea of micro adventures um, that, because those seem accessible. So talk to me about how you brought those into your life and how other people, people listening could bring them into theirs. So over, over a period of a few years, I started to notice that, what drew me to adventures and what I got out of adventures was pretty much the same whatever I did. So for example, in the same year, I rode across the Atlantic Ocean, which is um, wet, wobbly, <laughs> uh, and empty. And I also walked across the empty quarter desert from Oman to Dubai, which is very hot, dry, not wobbly, but empty. And I noticed that the things I was getting out of those journeys, the desert and the ocean, were basically the same. I was doing this for the same reasons wherever I was. Same ditto when I went up on an expedition in Greenland, which was freezing cold. It was the same stuff. So what I started to think was, can I get this sort of stuff without needing to go to the Atlantic Ocean or the Arctic Ocean? What, what can I find close to home, which will still give me this these feelings and benefits of adventure? So I started just trying to boil it down and distill it down and get the small little essence of adventure in something that was accessible and affordable and local and didn't take very long. In other words, stuff that normal people could do. Because by this time, I'd written quite a few books. I was doing blogging and I realized that people liked the idea of adventure. You know, sufficient people liked the idea of adventure to buy my books. And yet most of these people are not cycling around the world themselves. 
why not? And the answer, of course, is because of real life, a lack of time or lack of money or living in the city rather than a cabin in Montana. So how can we find adventure around real life? These were the questions I started asking myself. And essentially, I just started doing the sort of stuff I used to do, but on a tiny, tiny scale, close to home in the small, not very exciting landscapes around London where I lived. And, you know, if you can have an adventure in the hills around London, then geez, the, the, uh, the formula applies to everywhere in the world. Mm. Um, and to my joy, to my surprise and joy, the idea has really grown. And there's now all sorts of normal people with normal proper jobs who occasionally bust out of the city, jump on a train and go sleep on the hill for a night, get back in the city, back to their computers for nine o'clock the next morning, having had that brief burst of escape, freedom and adventure within the constraints of a busy working week. Yeah. I, I love that because it's so, like like I said, it's so accessible. And it, it's funny because I think about the fact that it took 20 years for me to become a surfer, even though I've lived in Southern California, my, you know, for 20 years, it took living in Brazil before I actually picked up a surfboard and, you know, made it a hobby. And all of these things have been accessible the whole time. They've been right there in my backyard. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's one of those things that for me, travel woke up that sense of adventure and I realized I could bring it back to my day-to-day life. Mm, I think it's a case of just noticing, wow, there's potential for adventure everywhere. Um, I did a, a Instagram Q&A last week and one question was, someone said, I'm, I really feel I'm missing out on adventure because I, I live in Japan. So I'm missing out on adventure. Have you got any suggestions? And my answer was, Pretty much everyone in Britain, if they were offered the chance to go to Japan for a day, that would feel like such an adventurous, exciting thing. But this guy, he'd, he's obviously emigrated to Japan and he's forgotten the thrills that he used to have when he first arrived, the craziness of being in a new country. And it's just become ordinary for him. Uh-huh. So often we just need to wake up to the way that we look at the world. And mm. one, one thing I've done this year, it's the tiniest bit of adventuring I've probably ever done, but I've enjoyed it far more than I thought, is I've scheduled into my Google calendar for the first Tuesday of every month to go and climb a tree. And so my calendar goes bing, and it tells me to go climb a tree, and I trundle off to the same tree every time. I climb it, it takes me I don't know, a minute to climb up there. It's quite high. I sit up there, often take a cup of tea up to sit there, and I just watch watch the world go by for five, 10 minutes. I notice how the wood has changed in the months since I was there. I think a bit about the last month. I imagine what I might do in the next month. And then I climb back down the tree and return to my shed where I work and back to the onslaught of the uh, uh, emails and calendar and things. But that has taught me more than I've ever done before to notice how much the world changes every month. So scheduling that in has been a really helpful thing for me to do this year. Wow. So let's talk about Spain and playing the violin, because this is the book that I read. And, you know, I played <laughs> tuba for nine years. And yeah, I mean, I've every attempt that I've made to pick pick up and learn another musical instrument, despite being really, really good at the tuba, has been an epic failure. Now, I don't you think I should have walked it. across Spain with a tuba. That would have been way heavier than a violin. And I would have, I would have <laughs> yes. made you come with me to carry it. And I would have taken, you know, I would have carried your violin. Uh, uh, I, it's funny because I remember reading the, the busking in the streets for money thing. I did that in high school at Christmas time and I made more money doing that in an hour than I did at my McDonald's job. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, a ton of fun. Uh, but th- this really struck me in particular because, uh, you know, you're well past the age where we actually have sort of, I, uh, the, you know, sort of brain plasticity to pick this up quickly. I know this from having interviewed the people that I do, like, I know we can get good at it. And at the same time, you really kind of took to it and you went and even were willing to play in the streets regardless of your skill level. So, you know, I think we have an idea for for where your confidence comes from. But tell me about how this really changed you as a person. Okay. Um, so this was my version of the fear project. This was my version of going to do some crazy surfing wave because going back to your very first question of the interview back when I was at school the thing that uh, at high school or even before high school junior school the thing that used to terrify me the most 
was when the music teacher made us sing solos and go, right, you sing this. And you go, la, la, la. And it'd be terribly out of tune. And the teacher would mock you and everyone would laugh at you. And ever since then, I've been terrified of performing, karaoke, dancing, stuff like that. It terrifies me. So that's one important thing for this. The next is that we also talked about the notion that if you every time you do adventure, you get kind of familiar with it. So to still get the same thrill, you need to do bigger, higher, more stupid. And and that's usually a recipe for disaster. So I needed to find a way that I could get the old thrill, the excitement, the nerves, the the fear of failure, the uncertainty of the outcome. So I wanted to get that back in my life. Um, I also love reading travel books and my and the travel books are in many ways what encouraged me into the world of adventure in the first place and my favorite travel books have always been this book called as i walked out one midsummer morning about a young man in the 1930s who played his violin across spain and i've always wanted to go retrace that journey but i can't because i can't play the violin uh, as he did and also i'm terrified of playing music in public so obviously i couldn't do that so for 15 years i kept putting off the idea and then eventually I got to this point of thinking, I need to look differently at adventure. I need to do something to scare myself. I need to try and get the fear back in my life and to do something that I will probably fail. And that's when I decided to learn the violin. <laughs> uh, I only learned for seven months. Uh, if you go, if you look on YouTube, um, there's a film called My Midsummer Morning. It's me playing the violin in Spain. And you will realize I'm absolutely terrible after seven months. I was terrible. And so I'd never done this before. Unlike you at high school, I'd never played in the street and I was not good. So the, and the final thing to make myself scared was I decided to do this trip without my wallet. So to leave my wallet behind, have no money at all, and to only rely on my musical playing for one month to try and earn enough food to do the trip as I walked for 500 miles through Spain to Madrid. So the first day when I set up my violin in this small little town square, it was the first time I'd ever played in front of anyone except my violin teacher. I'd never busked in the street before. I'd certainly never earned money for it before. And as I set up my violin and began to play, I realized that I had not felt that afraid since the day I set off in a small rowing boat to try and row across the Atlantic Ocean. And I found the comparison between those two experiences and the similarities of the fear so fascinating as I set up my violin in that hot, dusty plaza. Um, And the outcome, you know, to cut a long story short, was what I was playing. I thought, (laughs) this is a disaster. I will never earn any money. I fail. This is the most humiliating thing I've ever done in my life. I am a complete loser. I was like, all the horrors of high school come flooding back again. And I thought, this is a ridiculous trip. I'm meant to be a sensible adventurer. And now I just look like an absolute idiot. But to cut a long story short, I did earn a coin. I earned a coin from my violin playing. And once you earn one coin, of course, you then think, wow, I've earned one. I can earn two. And after that, anything becomes possible. And it turned into being the most, one of the very best adventure experiences of my life. I was walking through the beautiful hills of Spain, uh, sleeping out on the hills every night. I could never afford a hotel. Uh, Just coming down into towns to play. I had a rule that whenever I earned money, I had to spend it all so that the next day I'd be back to zero again. And have to and have to face the fear and do it all again if I wanted to buy some bread and eat that day. But I did it. I made it right the way um, for five hundred miles for a month, all the way to Madrid, powered solely by my terrible <laughs> violin playing, overcoming my fe- overcoming my fears, taking a very different perspective yeah. on adventure. You know, I've I've walked five hundred miles plenty of times before. I've slept in a I've slept under the stars mm-hmm. for a month, loads of times. That is not the adventure. The adventure here is standing up in a small little plaza in Spain, getting out my violin and saying, this is my best shot. That for me is adventure these days. So I think we can all look differently at what adventure means to us. Yeah. So two questions come from that. Uh, Which was the longest day that it took you to earn enough for food? Which was the shortest? And what was your interaction with people like? Uh, when they, did, I mean, did they know what you were doing or were they just people giving, when you had conversations with people and explained this to them, what was your, uh, 
your you know conversation with them like <laughs> so i before i nearly i was nearly too scared to begin this trip because i was so bad at the violin i nearly didn't go to spain and then i just forced myself to stop being a wuss and go but one of the things i thought was right i want to earn the money properly i want to just stand up there like the street musicians you see anywhere in the world and play my violin really badly and earn the money i didn't want to have to be saying to people oh i'm an english travel writer trying to follow this story and i haven't eaten today because that for me was then teetering towards begging which i didn't want to do i wanted to be working for my money so generally the money that i earned came without any conversation at all it's a fascinating thing the psychology of music playing in the streets is really interesting but generally people just walk along they hear you playing for about two seconds and they drop a coin as little eye contact as possible and they're gone. So people didn't know who I was at all. They were just being kind. Um, of course, often I did stop and have conversations with people and then I'd explain about the, the trip and the um, explain why I was so bad and the, the old <laughs> book I was following. Uh, yeah. But generally, the money that I earned came just from random small gestures of kindness by strangers who... I saw for just a few seconds. It was fascinating. Um, in terms of the days, the pro, the good days and the bad days, you know, I had quite a lot of days when my dream was just to earn a loaf of bread and then, oh, I've done it. Now my dream is to have a banana so I can put have a banana sandwich. So quite often I was at that level of, of diet. Um, yeah. But one day I got to like a market town on a Sunday morning when there were coach loads of Spanish tourists in town and that day is one of the most glorious days of my life. In two hours, I earned 17 euros. No man on earth needs more, needs 17 euros in two hours. I could not believe the cash was just flowing. I was like the richest man alive. 17 euros. It was astonishing. And given that I had my rule, I had to spend it all. It was just, a, it was so decadent. I could, I bought an ice cream. Uh, I bought a can of Coke. Uh, I bought a packet of peanuts. And when you've been walking for days and days and you've been eating bread, wow, this teaches you to appreciate the sheer joy of a cold can of Coke. So that was an absolute glory day. Uh, but most days I'd earn maybe two euros, which is roughly about $2. Um, one day, I really thought I was going to earn nothing. I played and I played and nothing was happening. And I knew that there wasn't going to be another town for about three days. So I really needed to earn something. So I was really getting nervous and it was so hot and I was, it was terrible. I was really doubting myself. And across the plaza, I always felt guilty playing because I was so bad. I would just, anyone who could hear me, I felt sorry for them. But across the plaza was a cafe and so I felt sorry for the people trying to enjoy their cup coffee when I was just screeching away. And there's one guy in the cafe just glowering at me from behind dark glasses. He didn't move. He just sort of stared at me, finished his espresso, and he's smoking cigarettes, and he stared at me. And in my head, I was just thinking, geez, this guy hates me. He hates me. And I started to get really angry at him. I need, I'm need. i just trying to do something good. And this man got up, and he walked over to me, and I was kind of ready for a big argument and a bit of a fight, really. Yeah. And he just took out two euros, dropped it in my violin case and walked off. He didn't say a single word to me. And this guy who I thought was being sending me the evils, he turned out to be my savior for the day. So uh, it was an amazing exercise in just having to trust the goodness of the universe. Wow. Like the Siberian mugger, you know, there's a bit of goodness in everybody. <laughs> I love that. Like the guy who robs your wallet, <laughs> gives you, steals your wallet, gives you directions. <laughs> wow. Okay, so, you know, I want to bring us full circle here because I know from having read the book, you're now a father and you're married, right? Yeah. So, you know, this is something I, I know you wrote about this. How does having a life like this impact the dynamic of, you know, being a father and also being married? Well, when... When I started doing adventures, I was young, free, and single, and I could just disappear for months on end, and I could not shower for two months, and it was brilliant. I was just having the time of my life being stinking and poor and off around the world, having living like a wild man. It was glorious. But there's, there's, there's even more to life than poor hygiene and, uh, and bad food. So eventually, real life uh, caught me up, and I'm now happily married with two young children, but there's no doubt that that certainly changes the dynamic of trying to be an adventurous soul. And it's something I've really struggled with. I've really struggled with 
how I can be a good and present father and husband and how I can still be me, which is this kind of hyperactive guy full of wanderlust who's just can't stand routine and is just desperate to disappear off into the wilderness. And the, the, the tug between these two halves of my life is something that I've really struggled with for quite a few years. And the way that I've worked my way through that, well, one of the main aspects was micro adventures. Um, acknowledging that I can't now disappear for two months on ends because that would be irresponsible. And actually I kind of, I kind of want to, but I sort of don't want to as well. And yet I need to get out. So micro adventures has been a great tonic for me of trying to fit in bursts of stillness and wilderness and peace and quiet and nature, but still within the, the routines and rhythms of taking my kids to school every morning. So micro adventures has been a big help. And then this Spain trip was the longest trip I'd done as being a dad for a long, long time. And that, that was a really important trip for me in terms of trying to process in my head what living adventurously means to me these days and trying to reconcile finally that being adventurous doesn't mean that I have to just be the toughest guy in town and I don't have to impress everyone by going off and crossing deserts all the time. <laughs> we're, we're, we're returning back to the initial question of uh, being in the locker room again here. But, you know, I, learning that adventure doesn't have to be that and that actually I can live adventurously just by being curious and enthusiastic and challenging myself in different ways. And um, the Spain trip really helped me sort of cement that kind of approach in my life, which results now in me doing things like climbing a tree once a month and taking a great deal of joy from that aspect of trying to live adventurously in a different way. Uh, wow. Wow. Uh, well, I think that makes a really beautiful way to bring us uh, full circle. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews of the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that being somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, well, it's just doing your own thing, doing what you want to do rather than, you know, there's a, I have a quote above my desk here. It says, the life that I could still live, I should live. And the thoughts that I could still think, I should think. And I think trying to be unmistakable is about just being properly and truly yourself, not chasing some sort of imagined ideal of what you ought to be or what society thinks you ought to be, just doing what feels really right for you. And if you do that with sufficient enthusiasm and curiosity, then I think we can all be creative in different ways and produce remarkable things. Mm. Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been funny, thought-provoking, uh, insightful, everything I, I love in an interview. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, everything that you're up to? Well, I've just jumped into the crowded world of podcasting. So what I'd love is for people to check that out. It's called Living Adventurously, uh, and it's in all the usual podcast places, uh, somewhere lower down the charts than uh, your own, <laughs> but living adventurously. And then if you look for Alistair Humphreys on the internet, you'll find me on social media places. And I've written 13 books as well. Some, a couple of, some books for kids as well. So, um, yeah, look up Alistair Humphreys and you'll find what you desire. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.